Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be looking at a 1970s Euro horror movie. Uh, this one is called The Lorelei's Grasp. Rob, how did you come across this movie? Well, in a previous episode of Weird House Cinema, we watched uh, Spanish horror director Armando Diosario's 1973 film, The Return of the Blind Dead, the second in his Blind Dead trilogy in which undead Templars... Uh, return from the grave and torment the living, but also, you know, stumble around and can't see what they're doing exactly. Right. This is the one where, like, skeletons come out of the ground with swords and they go around stabbing townspeople. And then mm-hmm. there is a sexy American firework salesman who, who like, charms the local women and somehow defeats them in the end. Yep, yep. And that, that of course, that character is played by Tony Kendall. Uh, so... I, I, you know, I really loved Return of the Blind Dead, and I was like, oh, I want to watch something with that kind of vibe to it. So I, I was poking around uh, uh, Diosorio's filmography, and here is this film, The Lorelei's Grasp. Um, I had earmarked it uh, to come back to later, and uh, yeah, it, it totally delivers. It ca- came out the same year, 73. And while Return of the Blind Dead, again, is about undead Templars and local corruption in Portugal, uh, with oh, a yeah. corrupt oh, mayor. Yeah, that mayor, yeah. Mm-hmm. This one is about mythic monsters 
on the German Rhine. So oh, we have boy. a Germanic tale here. This movie also has an ineffectual mayor, but not, uh, as far as I recall, not evil like the other one. Like, in Return of the Blind Dead, doesn't the mayor, at some point, he's like, I know how I will escape. I will send the blind dead after a little child. Yeah, yeah, he's basically Mayor Quimby. In fact, he he attempts to flee with the money uh, at one point. He's like, he's going to go to another town, become mayor, and send for the rest. Yeah, stuffing suitcases of cash into a golf cart while he's uh, sending the skeletons after the kid yeah so th- yeah this is a this is a tremendously fun movie because it's got uh, it's, it's got the the german mythology it's got some really bad science in it i mean you, you can't even it's almost it's just ridiculous science um and yeah. then you also have room for a little romance you have essentially kind of a werewolf movie going on here except it's a lizard uh yeah there's a lot to love this movie has science on the level of The Exorcist 2, where there's that line. He's like, this machine has scientifically proven that there is an ancient demon locked inside her. <laughs> In this one, it's my experiments have scientifically proven that the uh, that the Rhine maidens are real and that the Lorelei does transform every full moon and devour hearts. Oh, yeah. I can't I can't wait to 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 discuss that sequence. Now, so this movie is not only a monster movie, it's an example of a a particular subgenre that we might call the doomed monster romance, where uh, these are movies where a human of some sort falls in love with a monster or cursed entity, and we watch their relationship just plow toward its inevitable destruction because, in the end, it cannot be. And there are plenty of examples of this that come to mind. I was just uh, noting a few that, that popped into my head. The the Francis Ford Coppola version of Dracula, Bram Stoker's mm-hmm. Dracula, uh, a great example here. In this movie, uh, Mina Harker, played by, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Winona Ryder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Amina is is not just like hypnotized and transformed by Dracula. You get the sense that they are genuinely in love, but of course it cannot continue because the beast must be destroyed and and he is evil. And it's been a long time since I read Dracula, but if I recall, there's really not any hint of this whatsoever in the original novel, right? Like in the novel, Dracula is just a nasty demon and and nobody Mm -hmm. would have a reason to be in love with him. But in this movie, they decided, well, yeah, Gary Oldman's a rather charming guy. Let's make it so that Dracula and Mina are actually fated lovers across centuries. Oceans of time uh, have been traversed so that they could be reunited. See, I really need to watch rewatch Coppola's Dracula um, as a grown up because I, I I think I only saw it as a kid, and at that time I was just like, oh, I, I don't really like this romance Dracula bit. Can we go back to the creepy old man and the wolf monster <laughs> and the bat monster and all that other stuff? You like the butt hair Dracula, not the not the suave Londoner. Yeah, the yeah the the, the big haired Dracula with a weird shadow that's always licking razor blades. Uh, that was my Dracula. But I, I imagine the film would speak to m- me differently uh, as as an adult. I mean, both are great. But yeah, when Gary Oldman transforms into the young, suave Dracula, especially because he's got hippie sunglasses yeah, on, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's wonderful. But, uh, but uh, other examples that popped into my head, uh, American Werewolf in London. Here, you, you know, in the middle of the movie, they introduce a sweet love story between this this American backpacker and a British nurse. Uh, but of course, their their romance is doomed because the boy is a werewolf, and uh, it's there in The Fly as well. Cronenberg's The Fly. You know, Gina Davis must choose between her love for a hunky young Jeff Goldblum 
and the fact that he is now vomiting digestive enzymes on donuts and will probably at some point dissolve her as well. Right. So I would say common features of the doomed monster romance movie are there's an element of tragedy to them that is not always present in a horror movie. Uh, Often, though not always, the human who falls in love with the monster also has another mundane human-to-human romance on the back burner. So in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mina, while she's having this sort of ethereal love affair with Dracula, is also technically still engaged to Keanu Reeves. And so she's got that to fall back on, I guess, when, when Dracula is destroyed. Uh, in The Fly, they flip it around with a, with a really horrible twist by making Gina Davis's human backburner dude an absolutely loathsome creep, which really heightens the desperation and horror in the movie when she has nobody to turn to but him. Mm. And in the movie we talk about today, it definitely has this angle. Tony Kendall is pursuing two romances at the same time, <laughs> one a monster, one just a, a sort of disapproving lady. Yeah, and I guess this sort of plot line, you often get into the situation where it's essentially like you must choose between the good guy and the bad guy, the good girl and the bad girl. And, you know, and there's a fair amount of moralizing that goes on there, especially when you're dealing with with like, oh, well, he has to choose between the monstrous feminine and uh, and this idealized version of femininity. You know, yeah. it's, <laughs> uh, it, it gets complicated. Uh, but also there's a kind of irony in a lot of these movies where. Uh, it's like the monster is evil, so on one level, you know, you technically should go with your backburner human romance, but on the other hand, it's clear that the the monster romance is the one that's more meant to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a sense that it's a, it's a part of fate, and by teaming up with the uh, like by by entering into a relationship with the monster, you're you're either becoming immortal or you're becoming part of a, of a timeline that goes beyond just mortal existence. You're achieving your true potential. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in fact, along with those fatalism themes, I would say a lot of these movies also have something like a reincarnation plot. So mm. sometimes the movie presents the human in the relationship as the reincarnation of a lover that the monster had deep in the past, some kind of recurrence of fate. So Coppola's Dracula does this. Mina Harker in the movie appears to be the reincarnation of Prince Vlad's beloved. And uh, many versions of the mummy movies do this. Like the mummy will be some figure from ancient Egypt who was cursed or suffered some terrible fate. But once he's revived in the modern world, he encounters a beautiful woman who seems to be the reincarnation of his one true love. And often uh, the original reason he was cursed in ancient Egypt has something to do with this woman. Like they had an illicit affair or he tried to revive her from the dead using forbidden magic or something like that. Now, The Lorelei's Grasp does follow some of these conventions as a doomed monster romance movie, but it also, I would argue, fails to capture one of the primary themes, which is that sense of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it fails to capture that sense of tragedy, I think, because the parties in this monster love affair have really hilarious out-of-place vibes, both individually <laughs> and in combination. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, now, on the the romance here in a way it's kind of fitting but then also it's it's even more pronounced that 
that um, uh, Diosario doesn't really follow up on this, the themes of the tragic themes here, because as I discussed in Wednesday's Monster Fact episode, uh, the Lorelei monster emerges not really out of old German myths and legends per se, but out of German romanticism of the 19th century, popping up in a, a pair of uh, famous poems from from that time period. Uh, generally concerned not so much about a, a monster woman that's going to come out and, and uh, rip your heart out, but more about like a tragic. Uh, a woman who has thrown herself off the cliffs above the Rhine, uh, haunts the cliffs above the Rhine. Uh, Though, on the other hand, the other thing that I discussed in that is that there is a a Lorelei rock overlooking the Rhine. And I think we see this in the movie. Uh, This is the the, the physical location that inspired the poets in question. And it has a long tradition of strange echoes that were tied not to uh, mysterious siren-type beings, but to tales of dwarves and gnomes in the cavern depths. Is this the rock they blow up with dynamite later in the movie? Um, I don't think they quite, well, they blow up some, they blow up uh, something underneath uh, the Rhine, right? Some sort of subterranean realm. but uh, but yeah, there's scenes where there's some wonderful scenes in the film where where we see these kind of depressing Rhine <laughs> vistas with you know yeah. big container um, ships moving sluggishly down the Rhine, some very dismal um, Rhine uh, uh, riverside locations that yeah. that look like very lonesome places to die, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> but then also occasionally a shot of a neat castle or these looming cliffs. This movie does have a lot of wide shots and landscape shots, and most of them are not very beautiful or picturesque. Most mm-hmm. of them are depressing. Right. But it, it, it creates a vibe, which I think mostly works with this film. Yeah. All right. So here's the elevator pitch. It is a lizard werewolf movie full of Germanic mythology, made-up science, and early 70s Euro horror sex appeal. That sounds about right. All right. Let's hear the English language trailer. girls' boarding school is living a nightmare. Who will be the next victim? The Claws of Lorelei. The heart was gone. Sounds like a very old story I once heard that was told to me when I was a child. I still can't get it out of my mind. What story? The Lorelei. The monster stalks. Terror dominates their lives. The legend has turned into reality. Lorelei will be transformed into an obscene beast. She must devour human hearts in order to return to her centuries-old dream. You will stay with me throughout eternity. The Claws of Lorelei. Next on this screen. All right. Let's discuss uh, the people involved here. So, uh, once again, uh, the director and writer on this one is Amando Diosorio, who lived 1918 through 2001. Uh, if you want to hear more about him, you can go back and listen to that episode we did about the Return of the Blind Dead, also known as Return of the Evil Dead. Uh, he was, uh, Diosario here was one of the key names in the 1970s Spanish horror resurgence. 
He did the Blind Dead trilogy, he directed a number of action and horror films. And as we discussed in that last episode about him, he, he seems like a guy who always had these big ideas and inevitably ran up against severe budget constraints. Uh, and I don't think was ever completely happy with, with how he was able to realize these dreams on the screen, particularly when it came to effects and so forth. Um, still, I think this is another example of a film where he's, he's able to deliver some, some quality action thrills and dark fantasy, despite the, at times, very obvious limitations of, of what they were trying to achieve here. I think I'm going to have to go on record and say the monster in this movie is not super impressive. <laughs> no, but at least... Uh, at least I think they realized it didn't look good. And yeah. so they 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 rarely show it uh, for, for too long. It's often obscured or it's in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for the glove, the monster glove. It, it gets a lot of screen time. And, and even Oof. that could, at least from, from our perspective, from modern perspective, it could have been better. <laughs> it would have been nice to have a, had a, have a more convincing a reptilian human hand there. Uh, but despite it not looking good, I did enjoy every time it showed up because you would always see the hand. And I think it was always the same hand. It was mm-hmm. always the right hand. So I wondered if they only made one lizard glove. Oh, maybe so. All right. So that's the director and writer. But now let's get to the cast. Uh, the lead here is Tony Kendall, born 1936, died 2009, playing Sigurd the Hunter. Yes, Sigurd, as in the Germanic hero Sigurd or Siegfried from, um, uh, from the, the, the Song of the Nibelung, from the Volsunga saga, and from the Poetic Edda. Uh, this is our, our hero of mythic proportions. The main thing this movie wants you to understand about Sigurd is that he is attractive. Yes. Yes. Women, avert your eyes because Tony Kendall has ventured onto the premises. He. <laughs> I mean, he was charismatic in um, Return of the Blind Dead, but in this, yeah, it's like it's overt. Like yeah. when we first see him, he rides in on a motorcycle and and is just uh, you know decked out in stylish garb. Yeah, well, so the movie casts him as a hunter. Mm-hmm. The whole point is that he's supposed to be a sort of loner outdoors type. He's the, he's the most experienced hunter in the whole town, but. It's just hilarious. He does not read as a hunter at all. He reads as a guy who would be hanging out at the disco trying to buy you a drink. Right, right. So, yeah, and and to be clear, like we said, with the motorcycle and so forth, this does not take place during mythic times. This is very much a film set in, like, early 1970s. Yeah. Um, So, yes, he has the name of the mythic hunter, but does not look like a mythic hunter, does not carry himself like a mythic hunter and i don't think we ever see him actually shoot anything i mean he shoots at a few things but we never see him hit no he he looks dresses and acts like elvis not like a hunter Uh, so just imagine like 70s vegas elvis but carrying around a gun all the time and Mm -hmm. i want to talk about how he behaves with that gun later on (laughs) when we get into the plot it is incredibly inappropriate yeah like a like a prop for handsomeness yeah so, so Kendall was a former model turned actor and did quite a few Spanish action movies. Uh, he was uh, in, in Italian films as well. He was in seven movies in 1973, and this is yet again one of them. Um, he was in a string of Commissar X action movies in the 60s. He went on to do a lot of spaghetti westerns, including, oh, I love some of the titles on these, 1969's Hate Is My God. Uh, <laughs> uh, he did some Diallo work. Uh, he was in Mario Bava's The Whip in the Body opposite Christopher Lee in 1963. 
So again, clearly very charismatic screen presence that, that worked well with films like this. So, you know, he gets to be a man of both action and romance. He has a lot of swagger. He gets to bring that to the screen. So uh, yeah, Tony Kendall's a lot of fun in this. He is groovy. <laughs> oh, but so that's the human side of our doomed romance. We got to mm-hmm. hear about the monster side. Yes. Lorelai herself is played by Helga Linney. Uh, born 1931, and as, as of this recording, I think is uh, is still still alive. Um, and I, I don't think this can possibly be a spoiler because this film is not subtle about this. But yes, she is this beautiful redheaded actor. Helga Linne plays the seductive human form of our monstrous uh, murderer here. So she was born in Berlin, uh, but her family fled during uh, fled Germany during World War II, and she grew up in Portugal, where she worked as a dancer, a circus performer, and not the not the last former circus performer we're going to reference in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, she became a model and an actress. She worked from roughly 1941 through 2006, played a lot of femme fatales, uh, characters in horror movies, various genre films. Uh, I think she was pretty big in Spanish cinema during this time period, and she, was all, she also has a role in the weird 1972 train flick Horror Express, which of course stars Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Telly Savalas, and Sylvia Tortasa. Oh, who's also in this movie as Tony Kendall's other girlfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, but Linnea is is great in this. Like she's you know vamping it up most of the time. Um, I, th- I think I read somewhere that that she did not particularly enjoy this uh, this shoot and did not like the director. Um, mm. But if that is the case, I feel like she was able to channel that energy into this role because you know she's not she doesn't really like the mortal world she's just here to you know, you know collect a number of blood sacrifices and then go back to sleep right she, she just needs some human hearts and eventually she can take elvis back to valhalla with her exactly all right so sylvia totasa again plays the uh, uh, the good girl love interest uh this is a character named uh, elke ackerman the teacher, I, uh, she's essentially the headmaster of a private girls' school in this, though we never see any classes going, going on here. I believe the prime subject of this school is just bikini studies. Yeah, uh, Rachel and I were really confused about what the school was supposed to be. So it's like a mansion on top of a mountain full of like women who just hang out at the pool all day, but they call right. it a school. Yeah, it's a school. We never see the classroom. We just see them hanging out at the swimming pool. So, uh, Tortasa, Spanish actor who worked, I think, roughly 1964 through at least 2021, uh, born 1947, uh, still alive as of uh, this recording. Uh, yeah, and she's, uh, she's our, our, our hero's main mortal romantic interest. Uh, but they do the classic romance movie thing where when, when they first meet, she disapproves of everything about him. Right. Oh, we'll get into that. That is hilarious. Yeah. Okay. You can't have a villain without a henchman. And uh, and in this, the Lorelei servant is a character named Albiri, played by Louis Barbu. Uh, Barbu lived 1927 through 2001. Uh, Barbu was also a circus performer at one point and had a long career playing mostly heavies. He played the executed Templar in Return of the Blind Dead, and he also pops up in Conan the Barbarian. He was a gang member in A Fistful of Dollars, and he appears in, I think, 10 different uh, movies from Spanish exploitation king Jess Franco. Uh, I don't want to spoil all the details about this character in the film, but he's a really fun henchman, and there's some, there's some neat stuff surrounding his character. I don't know why, but he always kind of reminds me of the pirate that Glenn Close plays in Hook. <laughs> I haven't seen Hook 
in, in a very long time. I didn't realize she played a, a pirate with a beard. Is this is it supposed to be a costume or is it just a character she plays? I think it's it's just a it's a cameo. Like she huh. was on set for some reason, and pl- she's she plays the pirate who they put into the box with all the scorpions. That really scary oh. scene. You remember that? Huh. No, I don't. The only thing I remember about Hook is Phil Collins showing up as a police officer. Weirdly enough, I don't know why that stands out the most to me. You remember Bob Hoskins? Come on. Yeah. No. No. Just Phil Collins. Okay. That's the only thing I remember. I remember uh, Bob Hoskins uh, and and the Glenn Close pirate and a lot of food that doesn't look like food. Like they're mm. they're eating a big feast, but it mostly looks like play doh. All right, another actor in this film worth noting, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Angel Menendez, plays Professor Von Lander. Uh, dates unknown on this guy, uh, birth or death. Uh, but he plays, I think, my favorite character in the whole film, a scientist oh and Lorelei expert who kind of reminds me of Colonel Sanders. Uh, he is beyond <laughs> awkward in a way that ultimately makes the character absolutely work. Uh, and I think some of it was perhaps intended. Uh, Menendez was in a ton of Spanish and Spanish language films in the 60s and 70s, including 1969 Santo Faces Death. Uh, so a lot of Westerns and horror in his filmography. Wait, Santo faces death like the Grim Reaper? Does Santo wrestle the Grim Reaper? I don't know. I haven't seen this one. I think this one was, uh, it was either a Mexican-Spanish co-production or just a Spanish film because I noted some other familiar faces from Spanish uh, genre films of the day. Uh, But I'm not sure yet if he's actually facing a supernatural death figure or if he's just getting in a deathly situation. You never know with Santo. He might be fighting crime. He might be fighting the forces of evil. Might be doing a little bit of both. Ooh, I would be so ready to do another Santo versus the Supernatural movie. That's Yeah, we should do it. We need to go back to Mexican cinema. Always a fun time. All right, finally, the music for this film is once more the music of Anton Garcia Abril, who lived 1933 through 2021, an acclaimed Spanish composer and longtime head of the Department of Compositions and Musical Forms of the Madrid Royal Conservatory. Uh, he did a lot of work outside of cinema, but also did a whole bunch of scores, including the scores for all of the Blind Dead films of Amando Diosorio. So uh, I thought it was a quite good score. It has this wonderful little recurring dreamlike choral no- number. Anytime uh, Lorelei is, say, uh, riding on a horse in slow motion by the Rhine, that sort of thing. Okay, can you settle a question for me? Is it Lorelei, just like a name, or is it the Lorelei, like the werewolf? I guess either works. Yeah, because like you, you pointed out earlier, the title is The Lorelei, uh, but then also she is Lorelei. I think they use both in the movie. Mm-hmm. It gets confusing, too, when you look at the origins of the, the character's name, because it's often spelled different ways in these uh, German poems. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's more, it's spelled like Lorelei uh, or Lorelei, uh, but, th- but then the, the rock, I believe, is traditionally known as Lorelei. Hmm. And I also believe the the etymology is unknown concern. There, there no, there's no firm answer. Like some some people think it's referring to like it's uh, the the lie seems to mean rocks. Uh, so it, it's like the murmuring rocks, or it's uh, the like rocks of some sort of supernatural creatures, or they're loud rocks. Uh, hmm. I, I think it's uh, it, it's it's uncertain exactly what it uh, means. Man, I hate loud rocks. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, uh, we ready to talk about the plot? Let's jump into it. Okay, the first thing we see in the movie is the Rhine. Seems very appropriate, right? Yeah, there it is, sluggish, filled with uh, container ships. (laughs) <laughs> yeah barges dingy kind of low color Oof. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then right after that we go straight into the bride attack scene so what's the structure of a movie like this obviously before you meet any of your main characters you need to have a random monster attack on a previously unknown person uh, so here the victim in the first attack is a woman who's preparing to get married in the morning and she's she's trying on her veil and stuff and then her fiance starts throwing pebbles at her window uh, so she goes out to talk to him and he's like hey i'm drunk you're pretty and uh she she's like well you've been celebrating with your friends too much uh, and then she reminds him to show up at the church the next morning so they can get married <laughs> and he's like yeah i'll be there and he shuffles off uh, and then the, the spooky sounds kick in, the spooky music uh, comes in, and then outside the window, we see the first of many shots of the hand, the reptile hand. So it's five-fingered, like a human hand, but green, covered in spiky scales like a crocodile, and bugles for claws. <laughs> Do you deny it? Uh, yeah, they're, they are bugle-esque, I would say. Uh, again, the, the glove's not, it's not bad, but it's it's not great either. Yeah. Uh, But then we get to see the hand go to work, and I guess that's where it really begins to shine. Uh, And then the creature sort of roars, leaps through the window in an attack that will repeat many times throughout the movie. We see, like, the the reptar hand on something, and then the reptar jumps out, but we, we don't get a good look at it. It's just like a blur, and it appears to be wearing a black cloak with a hood, and then it tears open the victim's chest with its bugles and pulls out their heart. Right. Yeah. One thing that they established right off the bat is that this monster attacks fast and just viciously, like like a wild animal. Just uh, there's a lot of uh, swiping at the face and tearing at the face and leaving bloody trails on the face. And then it, uh, eventually it's going to rip through the chest meat, pry open those uh, those ribs and draw out that human heart. Yeah, that's something uh, I think some of these movies from the 70s especially do. They figured out that Okay, maybe if you, you got effects that don't look super great, maybe you're mm-hmm. not the best in the world at, at building up suspense through your editing in, in just the right ways, but you can still get get the emotions really high in a in a monster scene just by having somebody scream at great pitch and volume. Yeah. So a scene that has really high pitch screaming for like thirty seconds to a minute straight that will get you on edge, even if it's otherwise not cinematically very effective. Though I got to say, personally, I'm not a big fan of that technique. Like, I recognize why they do it. I say, okay, that is probably a, a sort of hack. That's a workaround. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but, yeah, the screaming, it just gets to me. <laughs> I don't know. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, uh, it's certainly one of those movies where if I'm watching it with the volume up, I have to keep turning the volume down anytime there's, a, there's an attack because I know there's going to be loud screaming. Uh, which, if there's anybody else in the house, they could they could be annoyed by that or 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 curious and like, why is there screaming? What are you watching? Why there's why are there, there there's nonstop screaming coming from the living room? Yeah, 
Though it works in TCM. Well, there's a fine art to the Scream Queen. That's something yeah. we'll have to come back to that in the future. What makes a great Scream in a horror movie? Right. Uh, so anyway, we, we uh, cut from this opening scene immediately to the funeral where uh, the fiancé, Carlos, who we met just moments before, now he's, he's there at the funeral and he's so distraught that he starts shoveling dirt onto the coffin lid while the priest is still talking. And it does look like they buried her in a plastic deli tray. <laughs> Um, I, I watched this uh, first with the English dub, and then I watched it again uh, in the in the original uh, Spanish. But the dub of this is weird, weird because with the uh, with the subtitles, we don't get a translation on everything that the priest is saying. But but in the dub, the the voice, uh, the, the, they they try and translate everything the priest is saying, and he's saying all sorts of weird things like something to the, to the effect of God so wanted her by his side that he made her a holy victim or something <laughs> to that effect. And it, and that I was like, well, I don't blame the, uh, the husband here for just like wanting to shovel the dirt and get on out of here because this is all this weird stuff. The priest is saying something about a holy victim and so forth. Yeah. If there's going to be a, a, a sermon or a, What's the word? A homily or a mm-hmm. speech given by the priest at a funeral. How do you guarantee the priest doesn't go off on some tangent that you really don't want? Yeah. So it appears that like the entire town, I guess, showed up for this funeral. And then there's also uh, uh, somebody uh, on the outskirts of the funeral watching on. Oh, right. Yeah. So the funeral's going on, and then it immediately cuts to just a satanic red carriage with red velvet curtains with a woman who looks like evil incarnate peeking out of the window with, with mm-hmm. a kind of sinister gaze. And I thought it was so funny when this scene came on. We were like, gee, I wonder if she's the monster. <laughs> yeah, I, I forget where I saw this, but there was some user review for this film where someone dared to call this a monster whodunit. Like, <laughs> re- really? I mean, this movie's not... If, if it, this movie was trying to be a monster whodunit, it, it's terrible at it because it's, it's tr- super clear. Like, yeah, she, she's clearly the monster. She came here to, to creep on the funeral from her carriage. And it's not like a red herring or a switcheroo. Like she mm. look, she's obviously the monster, and she is. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no switcheroo going on here. Oh, but she also uh, so she's sitting in the carriage watching the funeral. Um, I mean, come back to the question of why she's watching the funeral. But yeah. uh, you see it in the carriage. She has a driver, and this is Luis Barbu. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll reveal more about him. Uh, his character, uh, uh, Alberi or Albrecht. Uh, yeah, he, he becomes more important as we reveal more about the the monster and where she comes from. But what's she doing there? I don't know. I could never figure that out because it's established later in the film that she has no regrets about any of this. She's like, would you judge a hurricane or a, or a jaguar or a panther for doing what they do? This is just what I do. I don't feel bad about it. So if so, why did she take time out of her day to, uh, to, to creep on the funeral? Is she scouting new victims? Is she just curious? Does she just, is this, this the only thing going on in town? She's just bored. This is like more entertaining than, <laughs> I don't know what else she'd be doing. Just hanging out in the grotto, I guess. I guess so. But yeah, to come up here, she has has to emerge from the Rhine with her henchmen. They have to rent or acquire a carriage and the horse, get all cleaned up. It's, it's, it's a lot to do. It seems like there's got to be a reason here. Oh, man. And when they try to gallop off the poor horses, they are really skittering in this scene. Did you notice that? They like can't get a grip <laughs> on the ground and they're slipping around in the mud. Uh, they know there's a Lorelei in the, in the carriage. That's it. 
Well, after the funeral, we go to uh, it, it, something that it seems to me that there's a, almost a rule in Euro horror movies from the 70s that they must have a scene in a bar or a pub or a beer hall, I guess whatever you call it in the local culture, that is just visually ghastly inside, mm-hmm. uh, like lighting and wall color combinations that induce vomiting. I'm thinking eggshell walls with direct overhead lighting. Mm-hmm. It's just hideous. And then in this case, in the beer hall we cut to, we've got these red and white check tablecloths, which I guess might be charming in a like dimly lit Italian restaurant or something, but here in the bright lighting with the white walls, they just assault the eyes. It looks very stuffy in there, like it's probably about 87 degrees Fahrenheit, and the patrons are just exuding a stiff formality. I think everybody's probably wearing wool underwear. It just looks itchy to be alive in this place. I, I don't know if you had the same reaction. Yeah, yeah. This, this feels like a hot box where <laughs> town people are uh, gathered to drink room temperature beer and discuss uh, local politics. Yeah. But I I've ne- I haven't tried to make a list, but I feel like this is so common in like Euro horror movies of the early mm-hmm. 70s. They all have a pub or something that is just the interior decor is the most uninviting thing I've ever seen. Surely real pubs and bars at the time were not like that, were they? Yeah, one would, would hope not. But but yeah, this very much matches the vibe of the pub that is established in Return of the Blind Dead as well. Oh, do you remember that hideous pub in Psychomania? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like, who would hang out in here? <laughs> anyway, okay, so in this scene... Uh, all the townspeople are hanging out, and, and the mayor and the coroner are sitting at a table together, and they're essentially like, gather around, everyone, and we will discuss the gory private details of the recent murder. Uh, so they're asking questions to the coroner, and the coroner finally admits the girl's heart was gone. Mm. And then somebody yells, I'll bet it was a bear that attacked her. And another guy goes, it might have been a man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is one person in this bar who knows what's up. It is the blind musician, a Hungarian fiddle player, who is like, I know what it was. It was the Lorelei. And she will need more victims and more and more and more and more and more victims. <laughs> I think he says, there will come new evils. I'm warning you. And immediately everybody is just telling him to shut up. You know, we don't, we don't care. The, those legends are not true. Nobody believes in that. You, you compared him to Crazy Ralph in the notes here. Um, oh, yeah. He's Crazy Ralph from Friday the 13th. You're all <laughs> doomed. Ah, Ralph, get out of here. The thing about the, uh, the the blind musician here, though, is he's a very likable uh, doomsayer. He's not like the, yeah. he's not the town weirdo. He's the he seems to be a musician that everyone likes and respects. And uh, when he inevitably bites it later on, like, people are disturbed by it. Uh, so it, it is a slightly different move than than other films. Certainly, the the doomsayer in Return of the Blind Dead was not a likable character. Who was was that the the guy who looked like Stephen King? Oh yes, that was Murdo. Murdo, yeah. Murdo, yes. Oh, such a such a wonderful creep. And this guy's uh, not a creep at all. This guy's just a, a beloved musician. Yeah, he's great, except he believes in the Lorelei, and everybody it does not like that he believes in the Lorelei. I guess this, mm-hmm. this is a rationalist town. We believe only in science here. Uh, <laughs> but he says, according to the tradition of the seven full moons, Lorelei will be transformed into an obscene beast. She will need to devour human hearts in order to return to her centuries-old dream. 
And the mayor says, nobody believes in that legend. And then they're interrupted when the beautiful professor from the local girls school walks in and uh, she, uh, she, she walks up to the mayor and gives a speech that's like, uh, basically we need you to send somebody to protect us because I somehow already know about all the killings that are going to take place for the rest of this movie. <laughs> well, it's a small town and, and she's a sharp lady. She's a professor. She knows she can yeah. tell what's coming. The character's name is Elke or Elke or Elka Ackerman. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course the, the fiddle player once again chimes in. He's like, you're right, young lady. These killings are caused by Lorelai. She will need new victims. And the mayor once again tells him to shut up. And there was a very <laughs> funny piece of staging here. So he says, Lorelai will need new victims. The mayor is like, shut up. And then he just pivots. Like he just turns 90 degrees and stops talking. <laughs> I don't know why that was very funny, but it was like, why the pivot? But anyway, so all the dudes in the beer hall are immediately, they, they hear, um, uh, the beautiful professor's pitch and they're all like, Oh yeah, I'll come protect you, miss. Uh, does this mean I'm your boyfriend now? And the mayor says, no, 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 no. We're going to send you Sigurd. He's better than all of these dopes. He, he is the most experienced hunter in town and oh boy, now we're going to meet Sigurd. Oh goodness! Yeah, this whole sequence. Because okay, so I, we go to the school, and, and and instantly the soundtrack shifts to this kind of funky jam, which I really like. It lets you know that it's uh, is uh, swinging. Good times are coming. Yeah, it's a funky bass line. Boom, ba do 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 do, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the the girl school. It, it's just where like a lot of women hang out, like by the pool playing volleyball and stuff. And there's a thing I wanted to flag here about something that. Uh, uh, that Elke, the character here, is doing by the pool. I would say basically at least half of the scenes in this movie in which there is a woman on screen, she's brushing her hair. <laughs> and at first, this seemed like a bizarre filmmaking tick. Like, I don't know, maybe the, the director is just like, uh, uh, oh, she should be brushing her hair. But I think maybe it's actually not that. Maybe it connects thematically to the Lorelei myth because isn't there something in the legend about like a golden, a golden hairbrush or something? There is. Yeah. Golden hair and a golden comb. Uh, yeah. Looking at the, a bit from the poem here from Heinrich Heine. Um, there's a bit that's, uh, that go, this is obviously translation. Um, the fairest of maidens is sitting up there, a beautiful delight. Her golden jewels are shining. She's combing her golden hair. She holds a golden comb singing along as well, an enthralling and spellbinding melody. Okay. So maybe that justifies it, but I got to still, <laughs> especially if you don't know that it's funny, it's funny yeah. in the movie that Elke here, the professor is just sitting by the pool and just brushing her hair. Yeah. <laughs> so they're having a great time, lots of giggling and so forth. And then uh, we hear and see the motorcycle arriving. Oh, 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 I also forgot. They're told the hunter's coming and they're like, oh, yes, I'm sure it will be a disgusting old man if he's such an experienced hunter. And then right. vroom, vroom, here comes Tony Kendall. Yeah, he arrives and it's instead it's it's not an old man, it's Elvis. <laughs> and he's carrying a rifle. Uh, and he, he rides his motorcycle up and he's wearing this outfit with like the, this cool white coat and I think bell bottoms and big wide collar shirt, uh, as, as was the style at the time. And, uh, and, and everybody's like, Ooh, a man. (laughs) And uh, he, and so when, when Elvis comes up the stairs here, you can tell he has many years of experience as a hunter 
because he's carrying a rifle and he carries it with the barrel pointed straight up at his, at his own chin. Uh, and sometimes he he will just like point it at people during conversation. <laughs> he basically always has it pointed at a human. He might as well be picking his teeth with the gun barrel. I think in literally every scene where he has the gun, he's holding it. So it's either pointed at the person he's talking to or at his own face. Now, be fair, Joe, in this one screenshot that you included here in our notes, uh, he has his thumb over the end of the barrel. It's like having the safety on. But also, you could look at him, uh, apart from the lack of gun safety knowledge, you could just tell in your heart of hearts, this man has never, ever been hunting. <laughs> but he informs us, yes, I, I am the master hunter. I've been hunting since I was 11, I think uh, is what he says. So uh, we just so he started early. So he's great, even though, again, we will never see him actually shoot anything with this rifle. Um, we just see him stalk around mostly. Since he was 11 years old, he has been hunting for the best disco in town. (laughs) Yeah, he does have a real disco stew vibe going on here. It's pretty great. Yeah. So they hire him. He promises to find and kill the uh, bear that has been removing people's hearts. Uh, Though I think this has only happened one time so far in the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, and and from this moment on, every scene at the school, like all the women at the school are just like, ooh, Tony, wow, can I hold your bullets for you? They're, they're just gaga for him. Yeah, there's a wonderful scene later on where it's nighttime, it's bedtime uh, at the school, and Tony Kendall's out there walking around, I think drinking, possibly smoking. He's always and, drinking. Yeah, yeah. And, and we see like three different windows where uh, the students are preparing for bed, and they're like making eyes and winking at uh, Tony Kendall out there, and he kind of winks back at them. Yeah, come on, dude. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. So a lot of the rest of the movie is Tony Kendall wandering around looking for the, quote, bear, and then intercutting this with scenes of of reptile attacks on random people. So the reptile hand uh, goes up on the wall, and then and then it's in somebody's house. It's, oh, it's Carlos, the fiancé from the beginning, or, oh, it's the fiddle player, uh, and he's just uh, killing all the random people. But I would say there are several plot lines that continue throughout the movie that we need to isolate and discuss individually. Mm-hmm. So one is um, Tony Kendall's romance with Elkie, the teacher. Right. One is Tony Kendall's romance with the Lorelei. And the third is Tony Kendall's romance with a weird crank professor. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that one's quite a romance, but it's one of the great relationships of this motion picture. Yeah. So let's maybe start at the end. Let's go with the, the professor. So okay. One day, Tony Kendall's out wandering around in his in his white Elvis costume, uh, and, and he's in the forest, and he ends up bumping into this dude who's spying on him. Is this yeah. guy with like glasses and a goatee? He looks kind of like a a cross between like uh, Colonel Sanders and Leon Trotsky. Yes, yeah, he's poorly hiding in the bushes and like Kendall's character Sigurd uh, like pulls him out and is like what are you doing what are you doing spying on me and he's like oh no no I'll talk to you just ask me politely oh uh, yeah but then so then he explains uh basically I know what you're looking for it's a monster and uh I'll take you back to my lab and show you oh god so, this lab is so good oh it's a lab just full of beakers and bubblins and <laughs> There's cages of all different kinds of animals. And there's a sheep and a dog just wandering around in there on their own. 
Yeah, and he has scientific. So he, when he gets back, he's like, "Okay, I have scientifically proven the legend of the Lorelei by doing experiments that would be condemned by the narrow-minded academicians." Uh, <laughs> but but I know the truth, and so he demonstrates the truth of the Lorelei legend by he's just got a jar that's got a hand in it, but it's mm-hmm. not like a it's a human hand. It's not like preserved in formaldehyde or something. It's just a jar on its side with a hand in it. So right. we, we were like, did he get that at the, like the hands loose bulk section at the, uh, you know, like you get the nuts at Whole Foods or something? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess like, the, well, we buried uh, somebody else, but we forgot to bury the hand. Could you use it for science? And he's like, yes, yes, of course I could. So he demonstrates the truth of the Lorelei legend by getting a needle and injecting the hand. And then what does he do? He does something to it. And then the hand transforms into a lizard hand from a human hand. And he's like, uh, Oh wait, did I miss something? Well, the, you missed one thing in the movie missed another thing. So first he injects this hand with something and it's not, we don't know what this is. Like it, this seems like this would be vital (laughs) to the whole, the whole situation. Like what did you inject into the hand? We have no clue. But then he shines his special moon lantern oh, on yes. the hand to that this is a lantern that reproduces the exact energy and illumination of a full moon. Right. So this is the wear lizard moon concept. Right. And this so we get to see this kind of awful transformation sequence where this uh, this dead human hand becomes a dead lizard monster hand. Beautiful. And uh, so he explains, I think, that this serum he injected, uh, which I guess is just natural to the Lorelei, and then the moonlight causes like an evolutionary reversion where the human reverts back to their lizard ancestor. Mm-hmm. Okie dokie. And then, oh, and then he's like, uh, here's a radioactive knife, and it's yes. the only thing that can kill the Lorelei. <laughs> Yeah, he stab- then he proceeds to stab the hand with the radioactive knife, which makes it first revert to normal human hand status, and then it it like melts to a mummy hand, or we're told it will melt to a mummy hand, and we see a mummy hand like nailed to the wall overhead. Hmm. So you know he's already got all the material together. He's getting ready to publish. This will get him tenure. Yes, but Tony Kendall's character is just like like ah, oh, that's great. Yeah, this one. Like he's not buying into it. He's just kind of yeah. putting up with this explanation. Yeah, don't don't you hate this nerd? Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, later this this crank professor will be uh, whipped to death by the Lorelei and her henchmen. Yes, <laughs> because and I believe he rats her out to the Lorelei. He's like, "Oh yeah, there's a scientist in town. He thinks he's figured out your secret and he's going to kill you or something." And she's like, "Oh really? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, Tony Kendall. He totally. <laughs> yeah. He basically sends her after the scientist. Yeah." Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's that. The second one is uh, Tony Kendall's romance with Elkie. So uh, again, she's she's the the teacher at this school. She's she's basically the disapproving school marm who does not like Sigurd one bit, except that of course she is uncontrollably attracted to him. And there's these scenes where she, you know, she they uh, they say he has to sleep in the moldy garage while he's uh, guarding the school. 
And she comes and like bangs on the door of the garage and he gets out of bed and he's all like shirtless and she's like, Woo, wow. <laughs> and they have some kind of argument about something, but they end up romancing, of course. Oh, there's also the scene where he shows like he had the funky music starts playing and he's showing up with a towel and she's like, What do you think you're doing? And he's like, I'm gonna go swim with the students. And um she's like, No, no, you absolutely cannot do that. And he's like, Okay, I'll go bathe in the marsh. That's right. So they send him to bathe in the marsh, and that gets us into the final plot line, which is the romance with Lorelai. Yep. So, yeah, so he's got to go bathe in the marsh. The marsh, by the way, you're not getting cleaner by getting in this water. No, this is this is a very loathsome uh, environment. But it, it works well. If it's going to be a place haunted by some sort of weird Rhine maiden, this this is it. Yeah, so he goes down to the marsh, and there he sees the creepy lady who has been showing up at the funerals and who I think he chased off of the school premises at night one time. Yep, he did. So she's just hanging out there in like a green bikini, and then uh, she runs off to a shack, and he goes into the shack, and they start talking, and... Uh, I don't even remember what they talk about. Is I think she's basically like, "Well, I'm the Lorelai," and then he's like, "I love you," and then they're <laughs> <Yeah>. in love. <laughs> but then we, then she just uh, she kind of peters out. She, you know, she she just kind of goes to sleep there in the shed. And who shows up to take her away? Well, it's her henchman uh, Albiri, um, or uh, or we might think of him too as Albrecht. And I'm not not sure if it's really revealed here. Like, first of all, when he collects her. He takes her to back to the the water, back to the Rhine, and just walks into the water with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking Very her strange. down into the depths. And then later on, it is revealed that not only is is he her, you know, potentially supernatural uh, henchman, he is one of the Nibelung. He is a dwarf. And in fact, in the uh, the work, the Song of the Nibelungs, there is a dwarf character by the name of Albrecht, who is the guardian of the Nibelungs' treasure, and he has both superhuman strength and a cloak of invisibility, uh, neither of which are really featured in this picture. Um, but you do see various artistic renderings of this character where he has a bullwhip. So he's a dwarf with a bullwhip. Um, and in Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelung, he is the lord of the Nibelung and the opera's primary antagonist. Now, in Wagner, does he use the whip to kill a meddling crank scientist? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's straight <laughs> out of Wagner. So he, yeah. So Luis here, Luis Barbu carries her down into the water, and so it became. It becomes clear she has an underwater layer. There's like a grotto underneath mm-hmm. the marsh where she lives, and so Tony Kendall ultimately has to go face her in the grotto, which he does by putting on a speedo with a belt and mm-hmm. uh, and going scuba diving down well, at the bottom that of the lake. Gotta have, gotta have. You can't just tuck that radioactive knife into the front of your um, your speedo. Oh, that's right. So he scubas down to the grotto. And you know what? Uh, 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 this movie had a lot of, I would say, uh, budget and aesthetic limitations. But the grotto set is wonderful. The Wherever they found great, a yeah. shot, this place looks great. Mm-hmm. It looks like a kind of like a Romanesque church uh, underneath the water. And there's like moss on everything. And it looks very old. Uh, so this must have been. Well, actually, I, I don't know. I can't tell if this is a good set or if this is an actual location. Yeah, I wasn't sure if this was even perhaps the same location that was used in uh, some of the Tomb of the Blind Dead movies because oh. they often had locations that looked like this, sets or locations that looked like this. So so I wouldn't be surprised if he was at least double or triple uh, dipping here when it came to locations. 
Yeah. So Tony Kendall scubas down to the grotto in, in his speedo. But then it's funny that when he shows up, uh, Luis Barbu is like, here, I, I've got some clothes for you to wear. Yeah. <laughs> put like, this on a, a cape and stuff. Yeah. You can't come into the presence of the, 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 the treasures of the Nibelung dressed in that. And so they, yeah, they give him the, this red cape and all. It's wonderful. Let's see. And she, she basically explains the whole deal to him, right? What does she, what does she say? <laughs> Well, she's she is the daughter of Wotan, the, uh, you know, the, the 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 Germanic Wagner esque version of Odin. So she is the daughter of a god. She hangs. Uh, she's not really the guardian of the treasure. That, that's Albrecht's job. Uh, but mm. but she lives here with the treasure most of the time. She is just asleep. But during the uh, the seven nights of Wotan, every uh, you know, however many centuries, she has to come up, transform into a monster, take on this second nature, kill people, rip out their hearts, consume their hearts, so that she can go back to sleep. Mm, okay, yeah. So every few hundred years, she wakes up with the full moon, turns into a lizard, kills people, takes their hearts, then goes back to sleep, and eventually she'll get to take a a hunk with her to Valhalla. Yes, yeah, because ultimately her the whole thing is like, look, I don't feel bad about what I did. That's just my second nature. You can't blame me for that. Uh, and you can't stop me, but here's the fun part. You don't have to stop me. You can just stay with, here with me forever, and uh, yeah, and we'll you know, rule in Valhalla and so forth. So she makes a strong case. Yeah, she says, I will make you, uh, I will make you eternal and powerful, right? Yeah, so uh, yes, so Sigurd has a, has a choice to make here. Uh, and we'll just have to see which side he uh, he goes with. Well, I, can't, I think he gets like hypnotized by a crystal or something, right? Oh, well, yeah, she does whip out a crystal, one of the, the gems of the Nibelung there, and she's using that to sort of hypnotize him. But he was already at least interested in this proposal anyway. Uh, Tony Kendall doesn't take a lot of hypnotizing. No. Before he will, before he's ready to, to follow a lady to Valhalla. But uh, they put him under, basically, and then um, Albrecht comes back out, and he's like, you know, this isn't going to work. He's in love with somebody back there. I saw them making out. And she's like, well, what I have to do is, uh, while he's out here, chain him up or something. I'm going to go up. I'll kill the other woman, and then I'll be the only choice. Problem solved. Lorelai, that is cold. That is that is cold and nasty. Uh, yeah, so they leave him chained up, but then he escapes because he's such a hunk that all of the Ryan maidens are like, he'll be mine, and they unchain him, and then they start oh, yeah. fighting over him. That's the other thing. She had down in the grotto. She has these three assistants, female assistants, and these are the Ryan maidens. Uh, while they're not in the old Norse uh, they do appear in Wagner's um, Der Ring des Nibelungen. And uh, so they're a common feature in the opera of Wagner, but also in some of the illustrations. So, for instance, author uh, Rackham did, you know, wonderful illustrations of uh, of various fairy-type creatures. And so he did illustrations of both Albrecht the dwarf with his bullwhip, and also he did illustrations of the three Rhine maidens. So if you're a Wagner fan, you're you're very familiar (laughs) with these characters. But yeah, they end up squabbling over him, which I guess is 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 a, is a common trope whenever you have a trio of uh, of monsters that are guarding over somebody. You know, be they trolls or witches, uh, they're going to end up squabbling, and that's going to allow your hero to escape or slay them. I don't think he slays that. Well, he I guess he does indirectly. Yeah, he so he yeah. they <laughs> they're fighting over him, and he escapes, yeah. and then he chucks a bomb down to blow up the grotto. 
Yep. So blows up the Rhine Maidens, the dwarf, as well as the the treasure. So everything gets destroyed. Now the now there's no layer for our um, our monster. Yeah, so Lorelai is running up to attack Elky, and and Tony Kendall's got to go save her, and he brings along the radioactive knife. And uh, I don't think there's too much surprising about here. He basically just like stabs the monster with the radioactive knife. She's like no, and then she turns back into the human version, and then she transforms into a skeleton, and then right. into a photo negative. Yep, like a photo negative ghost of herself, hauntingly telling him that I'll be waiting for you in Valhalla. And it's actually kind of ends on a, a haunting note here where he's he's sort of gazing into the distance, hearing this, hearing her promise, but also uh, the other love interest, the survivor um, from the school, like she's showing up as well. And so he's still torn between worlds here, uh, which is the love, true love of his life. Is it the life here on earth with this woman or is it the life, uh, the afterlife in Valhalla uh, with his uh, his monstrous bride from another realm? Would it be better to love a lizard of another plane? <laughs> and then we get that wonderful choral piece at the end playing over everything. So I have to say, solid monster movie. I, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, it's got, it's got everything. You've got the, the wonky science. You've got all these, uh, these allusions to, 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 to mythology and Wagner. Uh, <laughs> you've, you've got the, uh, the, the wonky monster cast costume. You have some fun performances. Uh, and, and I like the music. I don't think I'd say it's a good movie, but it's. I love the ridiculous <laughs> romance. I love the crank. It's it's mm-hmm. got all that going for it, and uh, and you know the monster is bad, but it's pretty fun. When the scientist is bullwhipped to death, it of course causes acid to fall off of the desk of the scientist onto his face, and yeah. so he gets he gets properly melted like that. I, I wanted to mention that as well. Oh yeah, I just remembered that. Mm-hmm. There's also a great scene where when, he, when Kendall's character first arrives in the grotto, um, she looks. She's on her throne waiting for him, and uh, and, and Albrecht looks over at uh, the Lorelai, and she gives him a look like uh, he's like, "Should I whip him to death?" And Lorelai's like, "No, no, no, let him talk first. He's like, "All right," and he hangs the whip back <laughs> up. All right, so that is the Lorelai's grasp. Um, if you want to watch this movie as well, as of this recording, there is a version available for digital rent or purchase in the United States on uh, on Prime. Uh, this version is English dub only, and I think the video quality is also a cut below what you get on the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. but it's also still very watchable. And, I, and the dubs in this case, the, the dub is not a drastically different experience compared to the subtitles. So I watched it the first time through. Uh, uh, with the uh, with the dubbed uh, Prime version, but then I rented it on Blu-ray from Videodrome, and uh, this is from uh, Shout Factory, their Scream Factory imprint, a double feature Blu-ray that also features 1974's The Night of the Sorcerers, also by Diosorio. But I believe there are also some international standalone Blu-rays of this film as well. But anyway, the, the blue that we watch certainly has better picture quality, has the option for the original Spanish language track, and also a few extra features. I just made a connection, which is one of my least favorite things about the movie, the going on way too long and too loud screaming scenes. Uh One of the alternate titles of this film when it was released in the United States was, I think it was called Till the Screaming Stops. (laughs) Yeah, not as good of a a title, but I could understand maybe uh, some 
folks having tr- trouble with the, the, the Lorelei title. You know, the Lorelei, despite what the musician tells us, the musician tells us at one point, like people already all around the world know the story of the Lorelei. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they necessarily do. You can imagine no. where people are like, are people on 42nd Street going to know what a Lorelei is when they're looking at what's playing? Um, maybe not. Till the screaming stops, though. Everybody knows what screaming is. And, right, that, right. and it, does, it does deliver. It says, hey, this movie will have a lot of screaming, and it will, it will test your patience. Right, right. And <laughs> it makes it seem like it's just going to be a, a murder film. But, of course, it's more than that. It is a romance. It is a monster movie. It is a, the tale of um, dwarves whipping scientists to death. Uh, it has it all. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there, certainly anybody else who's seen The Lorelei's Grasp. Uh, but also, if you have experience in Germanic mythology, the works of Wagner, German romanticism from the 19th century, and want to chime in on any of this, uh, do so. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you just have experience with the Rhine, if you've seen The Lorelei Rock in question, uh, let us know as well. We, we love the, that kind of firsthand information and feedback. And if you want to catch other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you know where to find them. Every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays we put aside uh, most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.